Welcome to The Mend, a podcast and show sponsored by the Center for Crime Victim Services. My name is Anna Nasset, and I am your host for this bi-monthly show. Today, I'm delighted to have Detective Matt Nisley here to talk about law enforcement and their role with victims of crime. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Yes. Um, this show was created to take a deeper look at services, organizations, and concepts for victims of crime, community members, and all who serve. We want to acknowledge the healing process for folks who are listening and not only provide resources here in our state of Vermont, but nationally as well. As always, I like to begin with a trigger warning. We do discuss sometimes uh, subject matter that might have to do with a um, little bit harder to hear subject matter. So always listen at your own discretion and please feel free to step away if you need to. Today, I'm delighted to have Detective Matt Nisley here on the show. Matt has been a Montpelier police officer for 18 years and currently holds the rank of Detective Corporal. He has a bachelor's degree in criminal justice from Castleton State College with a minor in sociology and a master's degree in mediation and applied conflict studies from Champaign College. He is currently assigned to the Washington County Special Investigative Unit as a child sex assault investigator for the Montpelier Police and also handles general investigation work in the city. He is trained as a hostage crisis negotiator, defense tactic instructor, and two Team 2 instructor. Team 2 is a statewide initiative that seeks to educate first responders and build relationships with mental health workers to better deal with crisis situations. So thank you so much for being here today and bringing all of your experience and knowledge here to the show. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Yes. Um, so I'd love to start by just getting our listeners to know you a little bit better. Can you share with our listeners a little bit about your history and how you were called to law enforcement and how that became part of your life? Sure. So there's, you know, there's the short, cheesy answer of I like to help people, which, you know, you're going you're gonna to hear from, from a lot of police officers. But it is the truth. I mean, I think, you know, we, we come into this with the want to serve. Um, and, you know, as, as far back as I can remember, my grandfather was a police officer at one point, and I looked up to him and always kind of strove to, to serve and to, you know, better society as a whole. Um, I also had a family member at a very young age, uh, a very close family member who was the victim of a pretty horrendous crime. Um, and although I was present, I don't remember that what happened, but I saw those effects and still see those effects even 40 years later of what that has done and and the ripples of of what what happened to to them and it, you know so even you know as I grew up seeing that it it just made me want to help people that had been put in that situation and to stop people from putting others in that situation. So I think that's what led me eventually down the road of, of you know, getting hired at the, at the Montpelier Police Department and becoming a police officer. Awesome, well thank you so much for the work that you do and I think for most of us, you know, we don't get into this work be lightly and we get into this work a lot of times because something, we have witnessed something or mm -hmm. something happened to us and and that shift that we make to do good with it and do good for others is really key to maybe our own healing and making sense of it and sure. turning it into something good. So right. thank you for sharing that. Um, how do you view your role as law enforcement? I mean, it's a pretty broad question, 
when working with victims of crime specifically, since that's our focus here. So how do you view your role as law enforcement within that? And how do you use that to approach your cases? Mm -hmm. So, you know, our role is to gather information, right? We're the gatekeepers for the criminal justice system. And we have to gather accurate information, but that doesn't mean we have to do it as robots. We can gather that information with compassion and empathy for what someone may have been put through. Um, you know, in the end, using that compassion and empathy keeps victims more engaged in, in our cases and up in better, resu better results in the end for victims and for just justice as a whole to keep people engaged and, and keep people feeling supported through the, throughout um, their interactions with the system. Absolutely. Um, for listeners, most of them know my own case that I've been through and that was really such a paramount piece was from day one of walking into a police station, having an officer who felt really like he was engaged, he was empathetic, he never questioned me on like believability. It just, that started that pitch in motion that allowed me to be able to continue forward and continue to go and make reports and continue that legal process to get to justice. But it was really, it started and ended with my law enforcement and their involvement and that's, the practices that they came came from. That's what we hope for. Yes, <laughs> that, absolutely. That we can give that result and, and have someone come out on the other end feeling supported by the system and not um, not failed. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the end, I rode in the longest officer in my case. I rode in his Porsche to the verdict reading in my case. So <laughs> we great. became very good friends and I get to present with him and others now. Um, but yeah, it just, you know, that was so paramount into getting me to the place that we became, that we came to. So it's awesome to hear that you're coming from that too. Um, which kind of leads to like the broader question that a lot of our listeners might not know, but what are victim-centered practices specifically in the law enforcement world? So victim-centered practices, it, it's about giving victims control when we can. I mean, we do have a job to do. We do have to gather gather certain information and check certain boxes as we move towards prosecution or move through an investigation. But it, it's about being able to honor the trauma that someone's been through. Um, and, you know, while honoring that trauma and asking questions in a particular way and providing the right environment, I think we also need to remember that victim-centered is about honoring that victim, but we need to be offender focused too, right? Like what did that person do to victimize somebody else? Not, you know, we, I think there's this myth that crime just happens. Like what happened to you is I think a terrible question almost because it someone did something to you to, to make you a victim. Um, it doesn't just happen out of the air, right? Correct, <laughs> so, yeah. So, uh, you know, that, that victim-centered and offender-focused practice um, is, is so very important, and, it's, and it even goes to the language we use when talking to a victim. Um, it, you know, what, asking questions like, what are you able to tell me rather than what happened or what um, it gives that space for the trauma to be um, honored and, and also gives that space to, to let, the, let the victim give what they can rather than feel interrogated or feel like they're doing something wrong by um, holding something back. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Um, like Because you are working with 
children a lot in investigations. How are you able to approach that with children? So, you know, it, it's, I mean, it's an the same theory, I'm sure, it, but it's it, totally different. Yeah, children are an interesting um, group because they're very easily led. And we have to be careful as, inve as investigators to not lead them to a response that we're looking for right? and be able to gather information in a proper way. And there's a, you know, there's a scientific method called forensic interviewing that we use to interview children. Um, and it's kind of, you know, providing those boxes to get the information we need, but not giving them anything that might be shown as our, as what we want to hear from them. Mm -hmm. um, so we can't lead, we can't introduce information. Um, it, it's really about giving that space to find out what might have been done to that child. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. That's... It sounds similar to adults, but it's, I mean, it's really letting, letting whoever you're interviewing, letting that victim lead the, lead the way. Correct. Um, and yeah, I know that that's been very important for myself of just being able to feel like I'm kind of leading the way. I'm leading the path in this and everyone's coming along with me and, and that's really important. Um, how are you able to, within this you know, victim-centered, victim offender-focused investigation, how are you able to switch and ebb and flow and meet each person where they're at? I think Knowing that everyone's coming from such right. a different place. I, I mean, place. I think each case is so different that um, being able to take it slow when we need to slow it down or, or speed it up when we need to speed it up is important. And I think bringing empathy to that person the very first time you interact with them and finding out what they need and where they're at um, is really that first step rather than rushing into, hey, let's answer some questions right now and let's, let's figure out what we're going to do next. And... Um, because in the end, it doesn't serve us, you know, as, as a system that's trying to stop, you know, bring people to justice and, and stop things from happening again if we make someone feel rushed and, and you know, more nervous by the way we approach a situation. Um, and conversely, if, if someone feels like we're not moving fast enough, that can also be a, be a problem, but it really is about using our using our empathy and our communication skills to find out where someone's at and what mm -hmm. they need to feel comfortable moving forward with the process. That makes sense. It sounds like with I mean your your background in sociology and mediation and all of those really play into being able to to meet people where they're at and work that process the way they need it to go. I hope so. I, I don't yeah. think we get it right every time, but we certainly try. We never get it right every <laughs> time. <laughs> I think that can also be very hard within the role that you're, the job you have of, you know, you're, there isn't room for error and we always make mistakes in whatever job we're doing, whatever work we're doing. And I know that's happened in my own case over the years of like, oh, you know, they accidentally added two T's to my last name and that made this one specific search warrant last six months longer than it needed to and all these things happen. But in the end, it was just a mistake. Like, what can I do? Everyone adds two T's to my last name. <laughs> and I remember my friends being really upset about this. I'm like, you know what? Like, everyone's just doing the best they can. And it's unfortunate, but we all make human errors. And so I'm sure that's a very challenging part of your job is dealing with when there is an error and just the effects that that can be. So, yeah. yeah. We're dealing with, you know, human beings with, with real consequences. So yeah. It, it is, can be a bit daunting at times. Yes. <laughs> Um, so when investigating, I mean, we've kind of covered this a little bit, but when investigating and interviewing cases, 
how do you navigate re-traumatizing victims? And, you know, we talked about training them with dignity, but what are some tactics you've incorporated into m not re-traumatizing as much as you're going to? Because it's always going to happen, but what are some of your tactics to being able to work around that and through it? I think, you know, one of the most, in, you know, the most important things, especially when we're talking about children, but it, it carries through with adults, is we try to, you know, get everything that we can in one interview. So it's not, you know, revisiting the same thing multiple times and asking the same questions over and over again. Um, it's about setting the environment correctly, right? It's about using, like, our, you know, our house the Children's Advocacy Center where we interview children is is a house with soft interview rooms. But we also interview adults there. Um, and, you know, bringing someone to that kind of environment where you're sitting in a comfortable chair, in a, in a you know, regular painted room rather than in a, in a cell block mm -hmm. wall at a, you know, austere wooden desk um, sets up a a recipe for success rather than a recipe for someone feeling tense and feeling like they're being interrogated. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and also making sure that they have that support person that they need, whether it's an advocate from uh, a domestic violence group like Circle or from the sexual assault crisis team, or, you know, whether it's just a family member they want to have available to them if they need a break or, or you know, or if they just need, need to stop the interview. Mm -hmm. um, you know, all of those little things we can do, I think, help support that victim throughout the whole process. And, and again, you know, it, it, for us, we're results-based, right? And we still want to get that result. So um, it's recognizing that it might take a little more time to begin with to set all those things in place, mm -hmm. but in the end, we get a better result. Absolutely. That makes sense. I think that's so incredibly important to have those support people, to have the advocates or family, to have that comfortable space, all of those things. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and just the acknowledgement that like this is not easy. Like we're asking you tough questions, and right. yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm you know speaking a little bit more from my own personal experience today than maybe I usually do with interviews, but. Um, you know, one thing that I've been very fortunate is I've had incredibly supportive law enforcement that I've worked with all these years. And and that, you know, never seemed all that shocking to me. Um, but as I go out and speak and present, every time I go out and speak, somebody will come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I went to law enforcement and I reported that I was being stalked. I reported this um, and they turned me away and said there was nothing they could do for me. Um, and that's, you know, it's really hard for me to hear that because they're like, what should I have done? And I'm like, well, I don't know because I didn't experience that. Like, what would your response be to that? Because um, it doesn't seem like the work that you're doing at all, but um, that that is the, res the interaction that a lot of people have. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, I mean, the first thing I would say is it's, it's disappointing to hear that that's going on still at all. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I think there are a number of ways to, to address that. And. And, you know, the first of which is to contact an advocacy group. I mean, there's, you know, Vermont Center for Crime Victim Services. There's places, you know, in, in Washington County like Circle, which is a domestic violence advocacy group, or Sexual Assault Crisis Team, which is specific to sexual assault and, and stalking, things mm -hmm. like that. Um, and, you know, the nice thing about those groups is that they're confidential, but they can also help um, people who have been victimized 
navigate systems. So whether that's the need to call a supervisor or go to that next step to make sure that the case gets the attention it does or, or that, it, that it deserves, um, you know, there are extra supports out there. And, and I think, unfortunately, you know, a first no is sometimes enough to be a big enough hurdle where people don't get the justice they deserve. Absolutely. Um, and, it, you know, we, you know, I think we're, we get better at this. And, it, you know, there's organizations out there like End Violence Against Women International who, you know, have the Start By Believing campaign where they're trying to get out to law enforcement. Um, trying to get the message out that this is a way to build better cases. Mm -hmm. um, this is not, you know, it, it's it's a way to get justice in the end. Um, and that it doesn't mean that just because we start by believing it, it stops our investigation from having truth or veracity in the end. It just means that it's an incredibly hard thing to come to the police department and report. It's an it's it's it takes incredible bravery just to take that first step, and it, false reporting there it's out there, but it's such a such a low percentage that as investigators, if we're evidence based, then we know that if you're coming through the door and making this report, you're likely telling us the the truth. Right. And so it, there's no there's no problem with the investigation by saying you know someone. I'm sorry this happened to you, I, I believe you, it doesn't mean that we don't later investigate and, and, and find the truth in, in the invest, in the, uh, of the whatever happened, but right. it, it just is a starting place that makes people feel believed and supported and gives us a greater chance for success. Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, that's something I'm really passionate about is going out and working with law enforcement and training them using my own case to be like, this is this is how we got here. Mm -hmm. But it started by, you know, from the moment I walked in the door. And for me, when I met with that question, when I'm speaking or whatever by people in the audience, you know, I always say, go to your local advocacy center and take an advocate with you. Mm -hmm. And if law enforcement says, I don't know how to deal with a case like this, I say, use language like, let's learn together. Like, you know, just being able to, to how, how can you start by saying like, don't take that hard no and saying, let's learn together. Let's figure this out together because I need you. Mm -hmm. But the part, scariest thing is obviously walking in for the first time and, and the barriers around just like, you know, I mean, unfortunate fear and bias around law enforcement. And so just whatever we can do to keep spreading that. And it sounds like you're doing a great job of spreading that message as well. So thank you. We're trying. <laughs> yeah. Um, which I guess would give me to the question of what barriers do you think that people face when reporting crimes to law enforcement, and how do we continue to overcome those? So I think you know we we've already addressed one right that that initial no is a is a tough one like mm -hmm. we, you know we don't know how to help you or we don't know what to do for you. I think there is you know fear of the system right. There's fear of like what's going to happen next. And when you think about that, I think our role as investigators, although we're not advocates, we can give people kind of some idea of what's going to happen next in the system mm -hmm. and give them some kind of realistic expectation of what an investigation is going to look like. Because I think just that unknown of like, I watch TV and I think this might happen, it, it is, is really difficult as someone coming in not knowing. And 
you know, as, as an insider to the system who's, who deals with it every day, it's easy to become numb and say, oh, yeah, I know what's going to happen next. I know, you know, I talk to the prosecutor and we do this and we do this. But us victims have no idea. You have no, <laughs> no idea clue. coming through the door. And, and I think it's very easy to forget that when, mm -hmm. we, when we deal with the system every day. So just being that initial guide, if the person doesn't have an advocate or doesn't know about the fact that there are advocates available, um, you know, making sure that we connect those services as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that's so important is is letting victims know what, what the criminal justice system looks like and how the different ways it could go when you're reporting, when you're hand, making your reports or whatever it might be because you're in this place of trauma and you don't understand what's going on and your ability to comprehend is definitely compromised. And so being able to really walk people through is so important um, so that they understand what may happen if it goes a variety of different ways and how that can affect their lives. So, yeah. And, and you know, I mean, I think other barriers, right, are fear of whoever the assailant was. I mean, it, you know, whoever that person was who victimized you, there's still a legitimate fear that reporting might lead to retaliation. Absolutely. And, you know, I think you know, help with knowing if we need to connect somebody with a uh, circle to get a restraining order or we need to move a little faster to get conditions of release in place to make sure that person is not allowed to contact you. Mm -hmm. um, now we know, you know, we know all of those things are just pieces of paper in the end and aren't, aren't a magical shield, but it does give law enforcement the tool to be able to go and arrest somebody if they do continue the bad behavior, um, you know, and I think just that there, there's also the, the shame that goes along with, with some of these things that uh, people feel like they're the only ones that this has ever happened to. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when you talk about removing those kind of barriers that, that you know, the, the shame barrier, I think, you know, survivors of, of cases like this or like yours, being willing to talk about it and being willing to talk about the system, being willing to get involved with advocacy is the way that we remove that barrier and and help people feel more comfortable moving yeah. forward. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, we've also had a really big week here. This won't air for a couple of weeks, but we've had a really big week in the news here with the Harvey Weinstein case. And mm -hmm. just one of the reports I was hearing was a woman saying that, like, reports of sexual assault are going to skyrocket right now because we saw some sort of justice. We saw the strength of these women. And so that's going to empower or show all these other people that, okay, maybe I can find justice or support or be heard or anything if, if these other women were believed and were heard. So I think it's, you know, hopefully we're starting to see more shift towards that and will cause more work for you all, but it sounds like it's the work that you want to do and it's worth doing. So. It is, and and you know we, you know we love to see cases when they're fresh and and easier to gather evidence. Yeah. But that but, um, we've worked very historical cases and worked them successfully. And you know if we can bring somebody some justice, you know as I said in the beginning, this these are not short lived effects for victims. Mm -hmm. So. Um, you know, if someone chooses to report later and we can still work within our statute of limitations that we have for the given crime, we're going to work the best we can to get a good result in the end yeah. and, and for the victim and 
you know, for justice and, and bringing whoever, whoever did it to in front of a judge. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, total off question that I didn't put on the script, but what, like, as we talk about justice, just because I'm super curious, what is, for you, what is justice? Super oh, broad question, that's sorry. A, that's a super broad question. <laughs> um, it, you know, it, it's an interesting thing being in law enforcement for the length of time I have for 18 years. Um, you know, at, at some point, it, there are cases where you don't feel justice is served. And mm -hmm. even if you won uh, them. Even if we won. And, you know, I think justice is is so individual to each case. I mean, what does that victim need to feel whole? What does that offender need to not reoffend? Mm -hmm. um, what does society need as far as protection from that person? Um, so I, I think it, it feels different. <coughs> yeah. Um, and, it, you know, I, I think early on doing these cases when you don't get a good result in the end and and you've done everything you can it's really hard to let go mm -hmm. um I, and i think it, there's some desensitization over time over over the end result mm -hmm. um based on you know if we do the best job we can for the victim and the victim knows that then that can be sometimes enough for you know just to be able to sleep at night i guess yeah, absolutely. but um you know, justice is such a such an individualized thing for each person in each case. I, I, I would hate to say this is justice, this is not. That's what I was hoping you were saying because that's how I feel too. But I just think it's something like we we talk so much about justice, and I think a lot of times listeners might be like, "Oh, well, it's this." Um, especially if it's a community member listening right now, but it's like it is a very moving thing, it and is. it is completely individual. Mm -hmm to everybody involved and not just the victim, but you working the case, the prosecuting attorneys, everyone involved, like justice looks different, I'm sure on every case for every person. It does, and, and you know, I mean, some of, my, some of my degree in mediation was in restorative justice, which mm -hmm. I am a firm believer in restorative justice, but I believe restorative justice has to have buy-in from the victim before it means anything. It Absolutely. can't be something, thrust upon someone to say, oh, you need to be part of this process because, it, because it's just not, there's fallacy to that, right? <laughs> that yeah. no, no one needs to be forced into being part of a process that, that, that when they've already been victimized some, some other way. It may be something someone wants mm -hmm. and, and we, can, we can help with that, but it's, uh, it can be great. It also cannot be the right answer for someone. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I'm a big fan of restorative justice as well. And, you know, for myself, I was like, well, that's not an option. But doesn't mean I haven't seen restorative justice in other ways in my life. And I think that, yeah, it's an incredible process. And I had um, Lisa Ryan on here mm -hmm. several months ago talking about restorative justice. And um, it's, you know, an incredible process. And I'm glad that that's a component of what justice can look like, but that you, you really look at the whole picture. Yeah. So. Lisa and I were in a, the same cohort through Champlain. So. Oh, nice. That's she's, wonderful. She's a, she's a great lady. She <laughs> is a great lady. Um, so kind of as we're starting to wind down, um, how do we continue to shift to stronger victim-centered offender-focused practices without being partial to one party? I mean, obviously, I'm talking from a very victim-centered place, so I am speaking somewhat <laughs> partial, and I understand that you have to be fair and just. Um, how, do you, how do you walk that line? 
As I said, I think it's evidence-based to start by believing, right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, it doesn't harm our investigation to start by believing a victim. That doesn't mean that you don't go and complete all of the interviews that you can and seek all the other evidence you can through search warrants or um, subpoenas or whatever you, whatever you need to do. Um, but it, there's, a, there's a starting place and there's an ending place of the investigation, right? So we can be victim-centered, be communicative to that victim throughout the whole process. It doesn't mean that, that that person who's the suspect is not getting a just chance in the end. Absolutely. It just means that we're, we're starting in a place and being compassionate to the person who's come in and made the report. Um, you know, there's plenty of cases that we investigate and can't charge in the end, sadly. Yeah, <laughs> or, absolutely. But it, it doesn't mean that either party has been cheated by the system or what have you. It just means... Sometimes we get to that spot, that space, um, you know, and, and in the end, you know, we want, we seek the truth. I mean, yep. that's our job. We're not, you know, we're not a victim's advocate, but mm -hmm. we, that doesn't mean that we can't provide the best environment for that victim to be able to report because in getting to the truth, that's the best thing we can do. Yeah. Yeah. That is your job to be a truth seeker, which is a pretty admirable job. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, what are, like within all of this work that you're doing, what are some of the fears and hurdles that you have doing this job? And then I'm gonna kind of parlay that into like, what do you do to like take care of yourself and sure. decompress, but kind of, yeah, what are some of the fears and hurdles you have in doing this job? I mean, I think sometimes it's, so, it, you know, the, the hurdle is workload. I mean, you know, sometimes these cases come in fast and furious and you're trying to take care of a lot of people all at the same time and move cases forward and, work within system constraints and you know and and we're at a time in law enforcement when it's hard to find people willing to do this job mm -hmm. so there's also staffing constraints at agencies where um, people are being asked to do you know wear multiple hats and it it provides a challenge to make sure that we're serving the pe the the people that we serve the best we can mm -hmm. um, it, you know, I think other other hurdles are just systemic hurdles. I mean, there are times when, um, you know, right now we have an incredible prosecutor who's very supportive and very communicative, and we can get on the phone right away to talk through cases. Um, but there are times when that hasn't been the case, and it's been a challenge to get answers and, and move cases forward just based on the, the, the system that we have to work with. Right. Um, <laughs> And it, you know, so I think those are those are definite challenges. The the sometimes we get to a verdict and we don't like the verdict or the sentence, um, and it, you know th that's a challenge. And I think you know when you talk about self care, there's there's um, you know I think there's a certain amount of you need to leave a lot of your work at, at your work and be able to go out and, and live your life outside and find outlets. Absolutely. Um, you know, not that don't include maybe talking about your work day all, all, the whole time. Yes, yes. Uh, um, <laughs> you, you know, w whether it be taking a walk with your dog or, or your significant other or, you know, hanging out with your kids. Yeah. Um, it's important to have that balance of, of work life um, and to be able to shut it down. And to be able to shut yeah. it down. And some of that, you know, it, 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 is, it, it is a challenge when you come at 
this kind of case with empathy to be able to also look at it clinically, right, and shut that off because right. because we are dealing with human beings who have been hurt. And, and you know, especially when you're talking about a, a, a child who's been hurt who is, you know, perhaps the most innocent of, of victims you can have that has never hurt anybody in their life, but someone right. has chosen to, to, to hurt them. It's it, that, that stuff that you, that if you can't find a way to deal with and can't find a way to at least somewhat clinically look at that, it can, it can eat you up. And, I bet. And, um, you know, and I, unfortunately I've worked with investigators who it, it, it has been too much for and, and have had to step away, even though they were great investigators and were serving victims really well, the, the reality of the effect that these cases were having on people was too much. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, you're working, if you're working nine to five, it doesn't mean the harm stops after five. Correct. And yeah, that would be very challenging to to make that separation and be able to continue to do that work. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I applaud you for, you know, finding ways to do that while continuing. And and also applaud people who, you know, upon self-reflection are like, I can't continue to be in this work. Mm -hmm. I need to figure out maybe a different path within Right. law enforcement or a different career path and you know I applaud that too I think sure. you know for each one of us to self-regulate is so important and you know maybe last night when I was still working at 9:45 at night <laughs> on writing right. I could have probably <laughs> taken that note but right. Um, right. you know we're all learning that's so, right that's right yeah I'm a little newer to this work than yeah. you so I'm sure it's it a, takes us time and it's a journey it's yeah. not a yes. it's certainly not a, a time that we figure it out <laughs> no but like you I enjoy the good the dog snuggles and walks mm -hmm. are a huge component to just you know that's being right. able to step away and to have that, that um, complete non-judgment oh my gosh yes yes absolutely um, well, it's been an honor to have you here today chatting. Is there anything else that you feel like we haven't covered? I mean, I'm sure we could talk for hours and I could come up with 7,000 more questions, but um, is there anything else that you feel like you'd really like to cover today before we close? No, I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, it's important to know what your resources is, are in your in your particular community. I mean, mm -hmm. I've talked about, you know, Sexual Assault Crisis Team and Circle and Vermont Center for Crime Victim Services, which is kind of a great place to start because they they serve the whole state. Yep. But each, you know, each local region is going to have services and advocates available. Um, to and that's throughout our country as well. It's right. Not throughout, just right yeah. That's true. Throughout our country as well. And, it, you know, I think whether or not someone ends up talking to law enforcement, those advocacy groups are still a great place to start and a great place to have your story heard. I mean, obviously, I want everybody to report because I want to go get the, the person who did harm. Absolutely. Like, I, that's, you know, that's what we want, but that's not right for every person either. So um, those advocacy groups are, a, like I said, a great place to start and a great place to have your story heard, even if you don't want to take that next step and go through the system. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, that's what they're there for. And they're everywhere in our country, not just here in <laughs> Vermont. <correct>. So, um, <laughs> well, Detective Matt Nisley, it's been an honor chatting with you today. Um, is there any, like, kind of broader resource or, like, website you would suggest? A lot of times I have people coming from a specific agency, mm -hmm. but is there anything you would suggest for people? Uh, you know, I would check out the, the you know, the End Violence Against Women International website. It has some great um, training resources. They hold a conference every year. Mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to go to the conference last year and got to go to San Diego and... Um, 
talk, you know, meet victims of the Larry Nasser trial and hear what that looked like and hear, talk to investigators from the Larry Nasser trial. They're a great, uh, you know, kind of, they started national, now they're international, yeah. and they're kind of a great clearinghouse, and they've started that Start By Believing campaign that I, mm -hmm. that I referenced and, and have some materials available for that as well. Awesome. That's a great one. And yeah, I just submitted to speak at their conference next year. So yeah. hopefully, maybe we'll see you there. That's but, right. That's um, right. <laughs> yeah, and there are a lot of sites, but I think that's a great one to start as well. Um, so I always like to close the show just kind of like on a brief positive message, just like a little one sentence that you would send out to victims, community members listening, whoever's listening today, or service providers. Um, do you have kind of a parting little thought? <laughs> I, I would say, it, you know, it, we know that it takes an incredible amount of courage to come and talk to the police. We're working every day to make it easier to come and talk to us. And, you know, it's our hope that um, someone can come to the door and feel believed and um, feel served by what we do. Absolutely. Thank you. I know that firsthand how important that is. So I agree with that. So thank you so much for being here today, Matt, and for joining us. Um, if you have any questions for the show, you can email me, Anna at StandUpResources.com. Thank you so much for joining us here on The Mend, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Be well.